I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. In this passage that we will read this morning, we will see an account that is repeated three different times in the book of Acts. It is perhaps a clue that we should pay attention when it's repeated three different times. It is the testimony of Paul, how he encounters the eternal God. In Acts chapter 9, it was through the words of Luke describing what happens to Paul. In Acts 22, what we read today, as well in Acts 26, it is Paul's words that is used to describe the account itself. And so you'll see some uh, changes within uh, each of these three accounts, largely determined by the audience that he's speaking to. Today he is speaking to a hostile Jewish group. If you can imagine a Paul, I don't know what you think of and with Paul, what's in your mind's eye. I think of a actually kind of a frail, uh, short man for some reason, bald, uh, with poor eyesight. Um, but here, I want you to imagine, perhaps maybe it's that vision, but also someone who has been beaten, someone who has just been rescued from the hands of a mob riot where they have beat him, kicked him, hurt him. So perhaps he's bloodied, perhaps his eyes are swelling up, uh, perhaps there's blood coming from some part of his face and body, his clothes are torn as he is recounting this story. And so with that thought, uh, I want us to think of our own uh, conversion how God has spoken to us, and perhaps maybe that's not you yet. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I've heard of people having encounters with God, um, but I'm not really sure what is entailed in that. My hope is that as we read this together, that you will see specifically what we are experiencing when we are encountering God. What we are experiencing, and this is at the heart an experience. Paul is talking about an experience I pray that one day you can talk about an experience that you yourself have with a God who knows you. So with that thought, I'm going to ask we stand as we read this together. Acts chapter 22, beginning with verse 1, reading through 22. Just right before this is a great hush, and the, and the riot as he dresses them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers... Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them into bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. 
Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste, and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. You may be seated. At the very last, you kind of sense the atmosphere of the room of it being a hostile crowd. Uh, Paul is in the cultural hot spot. Uh, The gospel will always have uh, cultural hot spots in whatever culture you're in. And Jerusalem, at this time period, close to A.D. 60, around 57, the cultural hot spot is the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles, and the message that Paul is bringing is not one they want to receive, that God has a place for the Gentiles into his kingdom. And so this is the type of stuff that would get him beat, all right? That may be not our cultural hotspots today, but we have our cultural hotspots, do we not? Those things that if we teach from what the Bible says, you will be ostracized, made fun of, insulted, uh, and in some places beat, uh, given the right circumstances. And so here Paul is, and he's been escaped, uh, rescued from the Roman author- by, with the Roman authorities, and he says, let me just explain. Let me just explain why I am the way I am, why I'm espousing what I'm espousing. And there's, there's going to come a time when someone realizes what you believe and the effect of it in some social issue, and you're going to want to say to them, look, you got to understand, this is where I'm coming from. And this is where Paul is, where he's coming from. So with that, we see in verses 3, uh, all the way really up to verse 5, He's kind of giving his background. Last time we looked at this in Acts 9, we kind of focused on Ananias and how God used another man uh, to help with with Paul. But here we're going to look at some lessons that Paul learned that we learned when we have an encounter of God. And the first starting point he describes in verses 3 through 5, where he's coming from, where he is as a Jew, uh, his background. And so he's he's catering to the Jew. He's speaking into the language that the Jews understand. Uh, and so uh, the Roman leader at this time has no idea what he's saying, but the, quiets the crowd and says, okay, let's hear what he has to say. And he appeals to the Jewishness of everybody at this point. You notice verse 3, I am a Jew. I'm born in Tarsus, 
uh, brought up in the city, referring to Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, which is one of the most esteemed leaders of that day, according to the strict men of law of our fathers, being zealous. And so he, one way after another, verse 4, he talks about how the zeal brought him to persecute those who were Christians of the way. And so he's saying, look, I once was where you are. I once had my idea of what it meant for me to get right with God. And it was appealing to all the strict ways of being a Jew. So let me just present this to you. That just as you see in Paul, we also, we may not have the Jewish background, but we've got our way of, of getting right with life or God. So we start off, we are naturally prone toward a self-perceived method of salvation. Understand that. Every single one of us are naturally prone to some self-perceived way of salvation. No human is exempt from this. They may not know who God is. They may not have an understanding of eternal life or afterlife, uh, but there is a method that they are going down. Every one of us, we're all going down some road that if we achieve this, that there is some sense of accomplishment that we are doing if we go down this route. For Paul, growing up as a Jew, growing up in the Jewish culture, it was, let me know the law well, let me perform it well, let me have the best teachers. For him to be instructed by Gamaliel was a huge honor. He stood out among the youth for him to be brought to Jerusalem and to be taught in this way. And so he was excelling. All right, He was excelling at his chosen path. But I want to present to you that though we may not be Jews, we still go about this same tendency. There's something that we want to excel at, that we want to be uh, excellent and do our best in, and that if we do this, it provides some measure, some means of redemption, of salvation for us. This is what's called your functional Savior. It may not be the Jesus Christ of the Bible, but there is some sense that if I have this, it functions as a Savior. For some of us, it's to, uh, to excel well in your career or in academics. And so that's why when you get a bad grade, you're all torn up. That's why when you get a bad review, you're all messed up because it rises high in you. Or it could be some uh, athletic aspect that uh, we want to be known for our physical proudness, all right? And so we're going to work toward that. And so when there's a setback, it tears us up, all right? Uh, So perhaps it's to be regarded by the opposite gender in some way, or to be regarded by the same gender in some way, to have some uh, way of, I excel among my peers. I remember just growing up that the setting I was in was a church. But, you know, I didn't really want just church. I wanted I wanted to be well regarded by every circle I was in, and I was just in a church circle part of the time. And so, you know, the problem was is the other circles didn't jive well, or didn't agree well, well with the church world. And so I would do whatever it takes to be regarded well in the school circles I was walking in, and at the same time regarded well as the church circles I was walking in. And that was the path that I was going down. And as you can imagine, there's going to be some conflicts along the way. And there was. Here Paul was, he's got his, his regard of, if I do this, I'm going to be well received. Now, then something happens, verse 6. As I was on my way, I drew near Damascus. Alright, now, understand, what's his state? 
is Paul discontented with Judaism? There's some doubts that are lingering. Maybe he didn't like the whole Stephen uh, execution. No, there is no indication whatsoever that there is any doubt with what he is living. He seems to enjoy the way he's living, and he's looking forward to getting rid of some Christians. That's his state. There are some of you, for whatever reasons, you're here today, and you are well content. You are comfortable in the path that you're in, and you listen half-heartedly to some of the things I'm saying because you're very comfortable with where you're in. Paul's right there with you. But something happens. About noon, so noon, where's the sun at? At the peak, all right? At the peak of the day, at noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around about me. So you, you have an obvious comparison. Sun is the greatest light we know, right? At noon, but then it was overshadowed by something else at noon. From heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. In this moment, Paul is experiencing, those of us who have uh, been converted by God have sensed this, and Paul is sensing this, and that is, we experience a singular sense of aloneness before God. Here Paul is, he's got his buddies around, he's got his comrades, they all think the same, they all agree the same, they have the same goals, and they are like one another. That's how we walk, isn't it? We look for people who are walking in the same circles we want to walk in. You will become who your friends are. And here Paul is. He's got his buddies. But God has a way of speaking where you realize you are utterly alone before God. They all see this light, but only Paul hears this voice. It's amazing what things we do when we feel like others are with us in doing it. I don't know if you've thought about that, but there is a, a, a phenomena, a psychological phenomena, where uh, people or scientists are studying, or psychologists are trying to study why it is that we do things that we would not normally do on our own, but we do with a group. What brought about this study was 1964, a, a terrible murder. Uh, an infamous murder of, of, uh, is done in a setting in Queens, New York, where 38 people were bystanders uh, to this murder of one of their number neighbors, a young woman by the name of Kitty. A serial killer attacked and stabbed uh, Kitty late one night outside her apartment house, and these 38 neighbors later admitted to hearing her screams, and at least three, three said they saw part of the attack take place, yet no one intervened. And so when this happens... Psychologists are trying to figure out, how do we do that? How do we allow, how can 38 people just watch a murder take place and not one of them do something about this? Well, launched all kinds of studies. And they've found 
Of course, they always, you know, here's one of the things that men do is they find something that's simple and they give it a name that you have to study and memorize and take tests about, all right? Uh, and so that's, that's what they do. Um, and they, several, they bring out several factors to this. They realize that as they study this, they, they did this one research where they put people in cubicles to intervene in emergency situations. They had college students sitting in a, curb, in a cubicle and restricted talk with fellow students through an intercom, and they're told they would be speaking with one, two, or five other students, and one, only one person could use the intercom at a time. But there was one time a, a person who was working with the researchers came in and started stuttering as if they were seizing, uh, having sufferings from seizures. It became increasingly loud and incoherent and pretended to choke and gasp. And before falling silent, he's stammering, asking for help, saying that he's going to die. 85% of the participants who were in the two-person situation went to help. In contrast, only 62% of the people who were in three-person situations got up and helped. 31% of six people situations got up and helped. This is what they call the diffusion of responsibility. The more people around us, the more someone's going to do something, right? So I don't have to do anything. I mean... Surely, out of 38 people, somebody's going to step up. The diffusion of responsibility are what they've said also, the confusion of responsibility when they don't know who is supposed to do anything and they don't want to be mistaken for the cause of the distress. We did another experiment where they had participants in a work environment and smoke filtered into the room. Clear sign of danger, right? We've all been taught from early when we see smoke coming in, we're supposed to get out. When participants were alone, 75% of them left the room and reported the smoke to the experimenter, which puzzles me. 75% did that. When three were in the room, only 38% left to report the smoke. And then when they put in conspirators who acted calm as if nothing was happening, then they found that only 10% left. Here's the thing. We as a society could sit in a room with 90% of us thinking perhaps maybe the building's burning, but because everyone acts like it's normal, we'll just sit there. When I read in Scripture, and it talks about a counting day with God, it is an extremely personal encounter. For Paul, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and tells us, you have sin, the effect of it is no longer that it's just me and all the society that we're all lumped in together and surely God's going to excuse the sin of my life because after all, it's a whole societal sin, right? But here in this moment, it is personal in that God is talking to Paul and is asking him, what are you doing? I'll never forget when the Holy Spirit starts speaking to my heart and the conversion experience. For the very first time, it hit me that there will be a day and time when I will be before God and God will ask me an account for my life and it mattered very little how I fooled the church, how I fooled my friends, that God knew my heart and it didn't really matter what the 
arguments were in society, what I thought was cool and was not cool. Because suddenly the standard changed when I could sense that it was going to be you, me, and God. Part of how God moves in your life when you're converted is the Holy Spirit moves in your heart when you realize it's you and God. And that's it. There's no more, well, so-and-so made me do this. No. Give an account of you before God. You don't stand in your parents' shadow. You don't stand in your wife's shadow or your husband's shadow. It is you that's before him. And Paul had that moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's no accident that there was a physical light being shown because it's speaking also metaphorically of what has to happen for us to realize that the things that we've been living for up to this point really don't cut it when it comes to God. And you're alone before him and you see what Christ has to offer. Verse 10, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? Part of the working of the Holy Spirit when anyone is converted. Not only do they have a singular sense of aloneness before God, but the fact of the Holy Spirit on your sin is that we experience a sense of helplessness before God. A sense of helplessness before God. It's one thing for you to offend me. You could always appeal to someone else. I could say, you've abused me, you've insulted me. You can find someone else to justify why you did that. I'm like, all right, well, we agree. But when you are ignoring God and insulting God, there's no one else you can appeal to. When you realize that all the power is in the hand of God, and he is the one that you have insulted his honor, his dignity, his glory, the thing that matters most. And you realize to your horror that everything in your life has been turned upside down. You know, I, one of the shows I've enjoyed watching from time to time is um, uh, the show uh, Undercover Boss. It's just, I thought, yeah, the tables are turned. I mean, it's just this, the idea of the boss going undercover, getting in with the, the, the workers, seeing everything, and, and you, you're always rooting for the employees as the, as the boss is there with them. Like, I hope you do well. I hope you perform well. But every once in a while, you come across a situation where, where the employee is just running the company bad, running it down, and, and, and treating the customers wrong, and just, you know, one thing after the other. And he's got his, he or she has their group around him where it's okay. And then at the end of the show, you know, the guy comes out and, Oh, the lady comes out and, oh, you're the boss? I've run the company down. 
to your face. Oh no. And there is either a sense of helplessness or anger that comes out. You understand that there is going to be a day when the tables are utterly turned in our society. Right now, we look at the powers that be. We look at the, 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 the media around us. We look at the popular opinion that is, is current, that is uh, against who God is, against what he stands, against love. Uh, and we think, you know, how can I stand up to the pressures of this day when you see ISIS coming in? It seems like the Christians are getting killed here and nothing's happening. How can I stand up to that? There is going to be a day when the tables are radically, and listen, instantly, quickly turned. It's going to happen in a blink. In a blink. Governments, media, celebrities, and all their stands will not matter to you and God. There is, in that moment, a sense of helplessness helplessness before God when Paul realizes who are you Lord the one who can make a light greater than the sun who's speaking to me in my heart who are you and he says yeah I'm Jesus I'm the one you've been persecuting listen there's going to be a day and time where God will say to you I am Jesus the one you've been ignoring I've and Jesus, the one that you thought, you know, there's some things worth more living for than Jesus. There'll be a day when the tables are turned. And there is, listen, part of the conversion experience is God fast-forwarding to us that accounting day. Part of the Holy Spirit conviction is giving a little sense of what that judgment's going to be like. In the day and time when you can do something about it. I think about scripture. I had, I had someone share with me in our church a few weeks ago. and um, it, was, it was after, just on Sunday after uh, service. Came to me and he was crying. His eyes were puffy. And he said to me, I've been up since one, praying and crying. And I believed him by how he looked. He said, I've had this vision that woke me up at one. And it was a vision of just the skies being on fire. Just everywhere you looked was this, this fire. And I had this sense that in this vision that it was the judgment of God. And there was this word that said that this judgment of God was waiting. And the only thing that keeps it back was this layer of prayer. Layer of prayer. And it produced in them an urgency of prayer all night shared this with me and you know don't always know how to receive things like this but as he's reading it and telling me this i was thinking about second peter chapter three verse four let me read this to you second peter chapter three verse four 
they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of this, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by this same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the bodies, heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to this promise we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So here this story of a, a vision is confirmed and meets the scriptural qualifications. Scripture says this is going to happen. And one of the statements this, this man said to me was, tell them it is not business as normal. And I started asking and thinking, what if, what if? Someday, if I believe the scripture to be true, if I believe what Jesus has to say is true, it's going to happen like that. One day, we're driving, walking, having your plan, staying busy with what you do, being concerned by the welfare and opinions and shapes and thoughts of cultural voices today, and one day, with a word, tables are turned in a radical way. Notice he said, all these things exist by the word of God. And that with a word, these things can cease to exist. As we sit here, as your heart beats, as you think, as you laugh, as you enjoy your day, it is done on the basis of, of God's mercy saying one word. And all it takes is one word to reverse it. Don't be afraid of those who can kill your body. Fear the one who can cure both body and soul. Verse 12 one Ananias, a devout man, according to law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived here, came to me, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the very hour I received my sight and saw him. We experience, after, after being naturally prone to our self-perceived methods of salvation, we experience a single sense of aloneness before God. We experience a sense of helplessness before God, but then we experience the influence of God's agents of grace. They're called believers. This man, it was Ananias, who came 
at the command of God in obedience and became an instrument of God's grace whereby he could receive the sight, be baptized, and encouraged in the way. Believers, you are an agent of God's grace. We pray, and we ask God to grant repentance before judgment comes. And then we speak and share what God has done for us. That's our role, because we believe in a God who is coming again. We believe in an accounting day, an evaluation. We believe in judgment, but praise God, we believe there is mercy that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And so we come to verse 14. We experience a sense of divine purpose for living. Ananias says to Paul, and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Do you believe that? God has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. God is appointing you to hear and relate to God, not to adhere to some Ten Commandments. He is calling you, appointed you to relate to Jesus Christ, to know him as a relationship. And then, for you will be a witness for him, to everyone of what you've seen and heard. Now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so he does. When you were saved, when God converted you, when he gave you that sense of aloneness before him, of helplessness, to understand that it is only through Jesus Christ that there is any hope for salvation, it is not just so you can profess Christ, not just so you can be baptized, but that you can be sent along the way to tell others that you have an eternal purpose in every believer's life. Every believer has an eternal purpose. That God is working in their life. One of the great things that happened in my life when I think about conversion was there is a sense of aimlessness, lack of purpose in my life. And when I came to know Jesus Christ, there was within me a still purpose, still quality that is nurtured by the Holy Spirit and that continues on. Do you have a sense of still-like purpose that is eternal given to you when god calls you it is not just to say that you know jesus to and to have that profession but to be an agent of his grace and to carry it on and so verse 17 he returned to jerusalem and he was praying in the temple and fell into a trance and saw him saying to me make haste get out of jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed me. They know me. They know that I was involved with Stephen. Verse 21, he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And as soon as he said the Gentile word, everybody rises up again. Because they could not stand for anyone outside of Jews to have place in God's kingdom. Let me just assure you, you can share your conversion. And I see this example of Paul as 
statement for us. We need to be sharing the story of how God is saving us. When did you feel singularly alone before God? When did you feel helpless before God? When did you cry out and say, God, I need your mercy? When did the purpose come into your heart and life? You need to be sharing that story. But listen, don't think for a second that just because someone believes that you had an encounter with God, that they're going to let you off the hook. If in the encounter of God, you still call sin, sin, they're going to hate you for it. Whatever the hot button issue is, you notice how they react? They simply say, let's kill them. Let's kill them. And his salvation was uh, almost to uh, have a whipping, or his back to be sk- peeled off. Why do we do this? Because we are not subject to this world. There's one who made this world. He's calling us. He's asking us to live to an eternal drumbeat. And let me just say to you, you will lose things, but you will not lose out. You may lose relationships. You may lose reputation. You may even lose physical health. You may lose liberties. But you will not lose out. Because in one second, like a thief in the night, the tables are going to be turned. And your physical health really will not matter anymore. The social opinion will be as dust And the powers that weigh so heavily now will be scorned at. Are you a servant to a dead emperor? Are you serving a doomed worldview? Or do you know Jesus Christ, the living one, who still is calling today? Let's pray.